You are now listening to the December 9th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Let's Read the Bible, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible. Hello, this is Nicole with Let's Read the Bible. There is a Korean proverb that says, Earned like a dog and spent like a noble. It loosely means that even though you do a humble task and your earned money prospers, it is fine to spend it however you want. But the meaning of this proverb has been reinterpreted in a new and different way among the young generations. Some people interpret and understand this to say that they have to endure like dogs if they are going to live a rich life. Some people take this as always good as long as they make a lot of money regardless how they make it. But as I said before, the true meaning of this proverb is we should spend money honestly and for good causes even if we make the money through lowly jobs. Today, it seems like people do not care much about how they make money. They don't seem to care even if they make money illegally, as long as they make money. They seem to believe that money will take care of the illegal aspect as long as they make a lot of money. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2 starts with this. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Isn't this different from what we may have thought? Wicked treasures do not profit. In other words, it means there is nothing to gain from them. Is there really no profit when the money is made dishonestly or not in an ethical way? Wouldn't it be good enough if the money is spent on good causes? But that is merely our thoughts, and the Bible does not say that. It tells us that it does not profit. Then why does the Bible tell us wicked treasures do not profit? The answer is in the second half of verse 2. But righteousness delivers from death. That is right. It is because it is related to life and death. Though wicked treasures do not profit, righteousness delivers from death. What is the reason people try to become wealthy? What is the reason people try to become rich disregarding righteous ways? It is because they believe the wealth will protect them. They believe that the wealth will solve their troubles, the wealth will become their strength, and the wealth will allow them to do anything they wish to do. But even if people become wealthy with these purposes, the money they made cannot provide them the ultimate life. Furthermore, people who become wealthy through wicked ways will be judged by God. Proverbs chapter 10 says that we will be delivered from death when we strive for righteousness, live lives that is honorable, and earn our money honestly. God looks upon the motives of the heart. He knows what we are truly thinking inside. I pray that we will all be able to pursue 
a righteous direction of life by listening to Proverbs chapter 10. Let's read Proverbs chapter 10, verses 1 to 32 together. The Proverbs of Solomon A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Whoever winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool will come to ruin. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. The wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. The wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, the heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. What the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. Like vinegar to the teeth, and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the ears of the wicked will be short. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land.
The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. We just read Proverbs chapter 10, verses 1 to 32 together. Christ by heart. 
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is the long-awaited Savior. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. I would like for us to turn to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman. Fullness of time. I wonder, what does fullness of time mean? And it literally means when the full number of days arrive, or better, when the time was right. When the time was right, God sent forth his son, born of woman. You know, many thousands of people had been waiting in the, uh, during the Old Testament times for the Messiah, waiting for the prophecies to be fulfilled. And not everybody was ready when Jesus was born, but there was this anticipation, when is the Messiah coming? But it had to be the right time, correct? The right time. And the Lord had prepared the world for the Messiah's coming culturally through the Greek empire and through uh, the establishment of the Roman peace and the building of roads so that you could go to the smallest little village and you could... um, get transportation there. There was language, one formal language. Everything was prepped for the travel and spreading of the gospel and for uh, the word of the gospel to be able to be written down. Prophetically, everything was ready too. The prophecies had been fulfilled, and now it was time for those final prophecies that led to the expectation of the Messiah to be fulfilled. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Um, This refers to a very specific prophecy, born of a woman, and I think it reminds us of the most ancient prophecy of the Messiah in the Bible, and goes back to the book of Genesis itself. And uh, there in the book of Genesis, uh, there is this prophecy to Eve. God gave to Eve. God said to her, uh, because the serpent had deceived her, God said to Eve, the one who's to come, I'm going to give you a son, and he will crush the serpent's head. The serpent will bruise his heel. And so there'll be a time when Satan and his power will be absolutely crushed, But Jesus was bruised in the process. Born of a woman reminds us that a son is coming. Now I want to go to the book of Isaiah. And let's look at, uh, so Isaiah chapter 7. Here's a prophecy concerning this child. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign... Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. Now, this promised son, God sent his son in the fullness of time. God sent his son born of woman. The woman will be a virgin and this son is going to be named Emmanuel, 
but he has many names. Let's look at chapter Isaiah 9, and let's look at verse 6. Okay, you ready? Here we go. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus' long-awaited Messiah came to be Savior of the world, and the prophet Isaiah names this child. This long-awaited Messiah is so glorious that one name can't contain all of his wonder and his character and what he's going to do. And so as we explore his names I want you to see which one you identify with the most. According to this description, his name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. Jesus is better than you could ever imagine. Remember those days when you just heard about Jesus and you couldn't believe who he was? He was what? Wonderful. The Holy Spirit takes an adjective, which is a descriptive word, and makes it a noun, a name. His, his name is wonderful. Not what he does is wonderful. His name is wonderful. Wonderful in Hebrew means marvelous. It means astonishing. It, this is no ordinary child. It's difficult to describe him in human terms. His life is no ordinary life. The Messiah is going to uh, have a nature and a ministry that would excite wonder among people and wonder in the world. And his ministry is going to be absolutely miraculous and astonishing. Wonderful is one of Jesus' names he used before he came in the flesh. Did you know that? Before Jesus came in the flesh, he appeared a couple of times to people. Not as my name is Jesus, but he would appear. He appeared a couple of times. And we call this theophanies. These are when God, God unveils himself. So before Jesus came on earth, was born in Bethlehem, he did appear a few times in the Old Testament. These are theophanies. And one of these theophanies, he says his name is wonderful. Let's look, go back. Hold your spot here in Isaiah 9 and go to the, the book of Judges. Judges chapter 13, verse 11. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and he said to him, are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, what? I am. You always know there's something up when you hear that. And Manoah said, now when your words come true, what is to be with this child's manner of life? What is his mission? And let's look at verses 16 through 18. And the angel of the Lord. Now, the angel of the Lord does not mean an angel. The angel of the Lord, an angel simply can mean a messenger. So the messenger of God. This doesn't mean an angel. This can be the Messiah. This can be Jesus himself. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that the angel, this was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? 
so that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is what? Wonderful. What is this angel's name? Wonderful. He says, why do you ask my name? And look at verse 22. And when Noah said to his life, we shall surely die, for we have seen who? I told you the angel of the Lord was Jesus. Amen? Amen. His name is what? Wonderful. We've seen God. And so going back to Isaiah 9, verse 6, I thought you might enjoy going back and seeing how in the Old Testament his name was already wonderful. So Isaiah says his name shall be called wonderful. Everything about Jesus is wonderful. Who he is is wonderful, right? Uh, The father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am what? Well pleased. How Jesus came to this earth is wonderful. His birth was miraculous, right? He's born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, verse 14. That doesn't happen unless God does it. But it was prophesied that Jesus would come. God in the flesh. Angels announced his arrival. Host of angels saying, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Jesus' love is wonderful, amen? It's astonishing that anybody would love you so much that he would die for you. Jesus came to do that. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If it comes between the wolf, me, and the sheep, I, I will die rather than my sheep die. The apostle John wrote, in 1 John 3.16, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, you know, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, 1 John 3.16 says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Scripture's saying, how do you define love? This is the way we know love, that he laid down his life for us. His love is eternal, It's constant. It never changes. God's love for you is not based on what you've done for him. A lot of good people here. But you know what? God's love for you is not based on who good you are, what you've done, what you haven't done, what you've stopped doing. His love for you is not based on that at all. His love for you is based on his complete choice to love you. I choose to love you. Oh, you choose to because, no, you're like the dog pound here. It's the way it is, okay? The dog pound. And somebody is walking through, what dog do I want? What dog do I want? What dog do I want? All sorts of dogs. You see this scrawny one over there? I don't know, your heart goes out because I want that one. Well, did it make you want it? Did it, no, you chose it, and that's my dog, that's the one I want. I don't know if it's house trained, I don't know any of this stuff, but that's the one I want, and I choose to love that dog, and that dog will never really understand why I love it. God has chosen you, and his love is based on his choice, so his choice won't change, God doesn't change. If you're loved by God, you're blessed, you're in. You never get out. 
His love for you doesn't come and go. He loves you 100%, 100% of the time. His love for you doesn't kind of change. Now, his power as well is wonderful, right? Think of the miracles that Jesus did. I mean, one after another, some of the miracles were prophesied. Messiah would do them. Messiah would calm the sea. The Messiah would feed the multitudes. The Messiah would uh, heal the blind and, and set free those who were captives. These are all predicted what the Messiah would do. But Jesus did miracles beyond that. Now, looking at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, and the next name is what? Counselor. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. This means that Jesus is able to help us. The term counselor can be used in two different ways. One is, uh, it means somebody who offers advice uh, like a marriage counselor. Or it can refer to someone like an attorney. Uh, You go to your counsel as you're talking about your attorney. It's somebody who defends or prosecutes an accused person. He's the wonderful counselor. He gives counsel, he gives advice, and he also defends his children. The Hebrew, the word in Hebrew is interesting. The word ya'atz is the word counselor. Ya'atz. But in ancient Hebrew, each letter was, uh, had a picture. Ancient Hebrew was written by picture figures that evolved into their alphabet. Okay, so these picture figures, initially, they all had a meaning. The picture had a meaning. Ya'atz was written using a yud, an ayin, a vav, and the tzaddik. Okay? So there are those words, yud, vav, ayin, vav, tzaddik. Now let me tell you what these letters mean. In ancient Hebrews, the yud was a hand, or it can, make, it can mean to make or determine. The ayin was an eye, and that means to see. The vav was a nail, which meant to make something secure. In the tzaddik, the picture was a fish hook, and it meant to catch or to need. So the, the Hebrew word picture of counselor is this. The Messiah would be the one who knows and sees and makes secure our needs and desires. Let me say it again. The Messiah is the one who knows and sees and can make secure our needs and desire. Jesus is a wonderful counselor because he's the only one who has all the answers, right? The apostle Paul said that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus. I need wisdom, I need knowledge, where do I go? Jesus. Jesus is a counselor who diagnoses our deep spiritual emptiness. Not only does Jesus diagnose, but he also can solve problems. Jesus has the wisdom to solve your problems. People, people came to Jesus with their problems and questions all the time. In the book of John, I think of three times. In John 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus with the problem. What must I do to be born again? 
got a problem. Jesus gives him counsel that leads to his salvation. In John 4, Jesus counseled a woman at the well, and her life was forever changed. John chapter 21, Jesus counseled Peter. When Peter was discouraged and depressed and defeated because he'd forsaken Jesus, Jesus counseled him. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't quit. Don't quit. Feed my sheep. Jesus is a compassionate counselor. I'm going to tell you, earlier in my life, I saw a counselor who was not a compassionate counselor. This guy would hear, kind of interrupt, and then point out where I was wrong and how what God's word says, and you need to, well, you know what? I know God's word. It wasn't the problem of being ignorant. I needed, I needed a little empathy or at least sympathy here. I need for you to try to get on the page with me and see my place and then speak truth to me. I don't, it just wasn't compassionate. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't compassionate. A good counselor is someone who lets you feel a, a sympathy. They have a sympathy toward you. A sympathy doesn't mean they've gone through exactly what you've gone through. Or they have an empathy. Empathy means you've gone through what this other person has gone through. I have kidney stones. So I've had doctors who were just like, you know, get over it. You can pass a stone by yourself. No pain med. <laughs> then I went to a different doctor, urologist. This urologist completely different. Oh, man. He'd pass kidney stones. He could say, I know how you're feeling right now. You're not going to be able to pass this one. You need to have this treatment. And hey, here's some pain med. You feel like you're dying, okay? You feel like you're dying. It's not improper use of pain med. What's the difference? One person can empathize, the other can criticize. Jesus is a compassionate counselor. He counsels us uh, through our circumstances sometimes. He directs us. I mean, in our, this whole birth narrative of Jesus, uh, one of the ways that uh, Joseph and Mary were led by the Lord was through a secular Caesar who made a decree. Way months before the decree was everybody, you know, had to go to your father's, your tribe's, basically, uh, household, uh, city, and so for Joseph, it was Bethlehem. Of course, all of these prophecies are falling into place because the Messiah had to be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. The Messiah had to be persecuted. As soon as he was born, Herod in his persecution, the Messiah had to flee to Egypt. Then after a while, the Messiah had to come back into Israel. The Messiah had to live in Nazareth. The Messiah would grow up. Then the Messiah would minister around the Sea of Galilee, teaching and performing miracles. The Messiah would die, buried, and be risen from the dead and ascend to heaven. So that's the whole story that was predicted in the Bible. And the beginning of this story all has to do through God using secular circumstances to be the guide, to be the thing that kind of turns us a certain way. God can use the secular circumstances of our world. God himself just will say, I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you shall go. I'll guide you with my eye upon you, Psalm 32, 8. 
God counsels us through our friends sometimes, doesn't he? They have wise counsel. Look for somebody who's walking with the Lord who will give you counsel, though. Proverbs 27.9 says, The heartfelt counsel of a friend is as sweet as perfume and incense. That's very expensive stuff. Primarily, Jesus counsels us through his what, gang? His word, primarily. The Lord will counsel us. He gives us wonderful counsel through his wonderful word. With your counsel, you will guide me. This is the counsel of the Lord. This is how the Lord speaks to us. And I said, it means to, the word counselor means to, to give wise, you know, like wisdom, like a marriage counselor, but I also said it can mean counsel as one who defends you. And we are in a spiritual battle, and Satan does accuse us. Satan, in Hebrew, his name is the accuser, one of his names. And the Bible says he accuses us before God day and night. Why should you save him? Why should you save her? He may bring up your sins before God. And if he does that, I'm like, oh my, I'm sunk, right? How about you? I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. But the Bible says, no, you're not, because you have a defense attorney who stands before the God, before God. And you, you read about it in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where it says, my little children, I am writing these things to you in order that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a defense attorney, we might say a counselor, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Accuse me all you want, Satan. Jesus defends me before the Father. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. Okay, we got it going. You guys need to go faster. What's the matter with you? Come on, come on. Listen faster. Here we go. Jesus has also given, going back to chapter 9, verse 6 of Isaiah, for us a child who is born to us, a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called, what? Wonderful Counselor, then what? Mighty God. Mighty God. Prophet Isaiah predicted that this child, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, would be the mighty God. Even the best of people are still just people, right? Jesus is so much more because Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is God. People all the time, at the time of Jesus, had different ideas about him. One time in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples, well, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Matthew 16, 14. And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Some others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. All these ideas of who Jesus was, kind of like today. But Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You know, today, just like in Jesus' day, about everybody who has heard about Jesus admits that he's a pretty good person. You don't hear people criticizing Jesus. Never really heard that. Islam appreciates Jesus. Islam says he was a great prophet, one of the greatest prophets 
outside of Muhammad. New Age philosophy said that he was the Christ spirit in the world. Other religions acknowledge that he was a good teacher. And the average person in America would say, you know, he was a nice guy. But Jesus is more than a a prophet. He's more than a Christ spirit. He's more than a good teacher. He's more than a nice guy. Jesus is God. Matthew quoted Isaiah 7.14 to prove that Jesus is God. In Matthew chapter 123, his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Jesus was born, his name was to be Emmanuel, God with us. The disciple John, listen to these. I know you, most of us believe it, but why? The apostle John testified that Jesus is God in John 1.1. 1, 1. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It goes down to say the word is Jesus as you go down in John chapter 1. The word, Jesus, was with God, and he was God. He is God. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, it says, we know that the Son of God has given us understanding so that we may know who is true, and we are in him who are true, and in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The apostle Paul declared Jesus as God. He called Christ God over all, blessed forever in Romans 9. The writer of Hebrews says that the son of God is God, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, the angel Gabriel announced in Luke 1, he will be great and we be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of David. And of course, Jesus himself claimed to be God. One point he says, before Abraham was, I am. I am was the name of God. This means that Jesus deserves our worship, amen? He isn't just a messenger from God. He is God the Son. Now, the mighty God, let's just focus on this for a second. He is the mighty God. The Hebrew, the Hebrew is El Gibor. He's the mighty God. The Hebrew word translated Gibor means, basically, it means a man. Even in modern Hebrew, the word Geber is translated man in, in, in spoken English, like you're going to go to Israel and they're speaking about a man. It's Geber. El means God. So literally, El Gabor means he is wonderful counselor, God man. El Gabor, mighty God. Isn't that cool? He is God man, the God man. Jesus is also given the title, the name. Everlasting Father. You see that? Everlasting Father. Now, who is this referring to? I mean, is this referring to God the Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a triune God, the Trinity? He's the Father, Father God, you know. Is he the Father? No, this isn't talking about 
Father, our Heavenly Father, the, the first person of the Trinity as we refer to him. This isn't speaking of God the Father. This is speaking of Jesus Christ, God the Son. Say, well, how can he be a father? Glad you asked. I love it when you ask the question. Keep your mark here in Isaiah 9 and go to the book of Hebrews. And we're just going to jump in into Hebrews chapter 2. And this is what the Messiah says. Uh, Let's look at 12. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Verse 13. And again, he says, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Here are the children, the Messiah, Jesus says, that God has given to me. Jesus is a father. And who are his children? Yes, we are the children of Jesus. He is the everlasting father. He cares about us. Every one of us has a father need. We were created with a father longing, a father need. And some of us, uh, we, we never knew our fathers, so that father need has never been filled. Some of us, our fathers have passed away, and so there's a, still a father kind of need right there. Some of us had a bad experience with our fathers. We never experienced that, having that father longing, satisfied Some have been abandoned. A whole generation of many have been abandoned by fathers. They're not there. Our fathers are detached or disinterested. Fact remains, we're not created to be orphans. We're not created to be fatherless. We have a father longing in Jesus, our eternal, our everlasting father is there for us. He provides the fulfillment of our father neediness. Maybe you identify with this name of Jesus right now. Jesus provides for us love and protection and provision. He's wise and he's our guide and, and he strengthens us and he's always available to us. Always picks up the answers, you know, the cell phone when we call. Never goes to voicemail. He's always right back answering our texts. He's our daddy. Everlasting Father, his name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and what's the last? Prince of Peace. How is Jesus the Prince of Peace? Well, first of all, he gives us peace with God. For those of us who believe in Jesus, we're not at war with God anymore. We were at war with God before we were saved. And God was at war with us. The Bible says, the soul that sins shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. We've all offended God. God's offended by that. And there's the wrath of God to deal with. But because of Jesus, when we saved Jesus, Jesus took the wrath of God for us. And now we have peace with God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Romans 8.1. So we have peace with God. He's the prince of peace. He provided peace with us for God, salvation. But he also gives us peace. 
I need that peace. In John 14, verse 27, Jesus says, peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. John 14, 27. Peace I give to you. My peace. Not as the world gives. I don't give worldly peace. Woo, it comes and goes, doesn't it? Ah, it's all as quiet in a nation. And then all of a sudden, some other country's sending missiles. Where's your peace? Your life is going along. Everything's cool. And all of a sudden, boom, something happens to you. Where's your peace? Jesus, I give you peace, not worldly peace, my very own peace. Divine peace Jesus will give you. So he says, let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. Jesus' peace gives us stability, you guys, stability in this world. The world is shaking and will be shaking even more as we are preparing for the Lord's return in these last days. In John 14, same chapter, verse 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives.
Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602-866-8999. That's 602-866-8999. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, I think if you were to ask anybody if they wanted to know what was going to happen in the future, they'd probably say yes. I think each and every one of us wants to know what might happen in the future. And sometimes we have wishful thinking, we have plans, we have things that might happen. We can kind of sort of think this might happen, but the reality is only God knows what's going to happen in the future. And for us as believers, we are blessed because Although the future for this world temporally is not that good, the future for believers is wonderful. And so God has given us an understanding of what will happen to those who've trusted in Christ versus those who have rejected Christ. And God's a gracious God to convict everyone with the gospel that they might hear and respond and trust in Christ, but he's also a righteous God who will judge sin if you reject that. Now, we've been studying the book of Second Thessalonians, and the Thessalonian church was a very young church, and the Apostle Paul has been sharing with them as they suffered deep persecution uh, what was going to happen in the future, and that future related to ultimately those who opposed the Lord and would be destroyed. Now, today we're going to see what happens when the church is taken up by the Lord, And we're going to see the ultimate sign of the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment and wrath upon the earth, when the lawless one is revealed. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this whole chapter is a unit. We've already done two sermons in it, so it's hard to share it accurately and completely in one sit-down. And so today, as I go through it, there's going to be a lot of information that I've shared in the other sermons already that I'm not going to share in depth. And you might go, whoa, what's going on here? Just sit and ask God to help you understand what he wants you to understand. Don't get caught up in wondering, oh, he's saying this and that. It's actually not that difficult, but there's a lot of information that can get us distracted. So just keep that in mind. There's two sermons before this out on the table there that give more detail into a lot in what I'll refer to today. But today we're going to see really the ultimate sign of the day of the Lord. Now I've mentioned already, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. This is the church in Thessalonica. We saw in 1 Thessalonians that they turned to God from idols. They were idol worshipers. They were pagans. And they heard the gospel and it worked in their hearts. And they turned to God from their idolatry and their sin to be saved. 
And it says in chapter 1 that they turned to be saved and then to wait for Jesus, God's Son, who delivers us from the wrath to come, to serve Him and to wait. When we get saved, we get saved to serve a good God rather than the sin we've served all our lives. And so they were waiting, and yet they were going through difficulties. When you come to Jesus Christ, if someone says, hey, come to Jesus and he'll fix everything in your life. No, no, that's not true. Jesus said himself, count the cost. Count the cost. There's a cost. If you come to Christ now, you're going to have all kinds of trouble in this life. But you will have eternal life and you will not pay for your sins because Jesus paid for them. And so there are the temporal sufferings for the glories to follow. And so these Thessalonians, they turned to Christ. They believed in him. And we see in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, he had to defend himself from the false teachers who were trying to discredit him. But he praised God because they received the word, not as the word of men, but as the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. And we saw that the apostle Paul was driven out of Thessalonica, Acts chapter 17. He was driven out by the Jews who were hostile to the gospel and hostile to Christ. That he was concerned about this new church. Where were they at in relationship to Christ? So he sent Timothy to check in on them to see how their faith was. And he got a report back that they were doing well. They were trusting the Lord and they were loving one another. True, genuine evidence of salvation. They'd been truly changed. And so the Apostle Paul wrote that first letter of Thessalonians to them in response. And he cleared up some questions for them concerning the coming of Christ and concerning the day of the Lord and how they are to sell still more in loving one another. And then, just a little bit later than that, he had to write them again. And that's what we're in right now, Second Thessalonians. This church is less than a year old in the faith. And they are being told truth that is very strong and very clear. And Paul's going to remind them today, hey, I already told you about that when I was with you for three weeks. You see, when you come to faith in Christ, you receive the Spirit of God and thus the ability to understand the Word of God. The reason why people who name the name of Christ after 30, 40 years don't seem to know the Word of God is, one, either they got sin in their lives that they're not dealing with, or they never truly came to faith, so they're still in their sins. But for true believers, we can respond and we can know the truth of God. So Paul writes this second letter to them, and he wants to encourage them. And we see that in chapter 1, that they're suffering for their faith. They're being persecuted heavily. And there were false teachers, as we'll see today, who had come and said, hey, the day of the Lord's come. You're in God's wrath and fury for sin. Well, wait a second. That doesn't make sense. We were told back in First Thessalonians that we were going to be delivered from that to be with Jesus. And then God would pour out his wrath on the earth for its sin. So Paul wants to encourage them that what they've heard is not true and encourage them with the truth that they would stand firm in that truth. And that's what this is about. But yet within this, he's going to explain something concerning the day of the Lord. That the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath upon this world, can't come unless two things happen first. And he's going to explain what those things are. And that's what we're going to get in today. We're going to get to the main sign of that, which is the lawless one revealed, which is the beast, the Antichrist, all those same names. We're going to look at that today. But we don't look at that to get enthralled by the future of this wickedness. We look at it to see that God is going to bring an end to his temporal exaltation. He's going to bring an end to it because he's going to judge the world and those who follow and still love their sins. 
So with that in mind, we're going to see what's going to happen after the church is taken out and the world goes into this time. Now you might remember, we looked at this already, so I'm going to review it and I'm going to go through it fast. So you get the CDs if you need to, two CDs out there. In chapter 2, verse 1, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. The Apostle Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and God built the foundation of the church on Christ as a cornerstone and the apostles bringing forth the word of God. And yet at that time, there were false teachers and there were false apostles and there were false prophets bringing false messages. Nothing's different these days. There are false churches out there who twist the word to their own destruction. There are bad guys out there who lessen the word of God, who train you to lean on your own understanding and to trust in the world's ways. We're not to lean on our own understanding. We're to never fall into the trap of being entangled by the ABCs of the world. We're not to do so. The world functions one way. The world says, this is the way it is. God says, this is the way it is. So then, he says here in verse 1, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to a coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. He has a request. And the request is in regards to the coming of the Lord and our gathering together to him. And we saw that that's speaking of what we call the rapture. It's called the harpazo You see, what's going to happen next for the church is Christ is going to come. First Thessalonians chapter 4. He's going to come, and those who have died, their spirits will come with them, and they will be raised. You can look at First Thessalonians 4. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up in the air to be with the Lord. He's going to take us to the place that he's prepared. John chapter 14, he says, If I go, I go to prepare a place that where I am, you may be also. He says, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. He's going to prepare a place for us. That's in heaven, not here. And so he's coming, our gathering to him. You see, the Thessalonians were awaiting that, and we should be awaiting that too. We should be awaiting Christ coming to take us out of this terrible world. Yes, we are here right now, and we're serving the Lord, but it is a sinful, fallen, wicked world with the evil one as the God of this world. And we want the Lord to come. Come, Lord Jesus. And within that, we're waiting for that. But some false teachers had come along and they had said, basically, guess what, Thessalonians? Your suffering is so bad, you're in the day of the Lord, which means you missed Christ's coming. You see how upsetting that is? If you're waiting for Christ to come to deliver you from this, and then this happens. And so we have this here. He says, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. Let no one shake you up. It hasn't happened. It's going to explain why. Certain things have to come to happen for that day to come. Certain things have to happen. You see, the reality is Christ is going to come for us and take the church, but then there's going to be, as we've talked about, That tribulation period, I talked about it last week, shared all the scriptures, seven years, which begins with the Antichrist making a deal with Israel. You can look at that, Daniel. And the last portion, the great tribulation, last three and a half years in which the Lord Jesus spoke of. And so he says, hey, 
Don't be shaken by these bad guys who are bringing a false message. They're bringing a false message. Let no one deceive you. We saw that word meant be wholly deceived, be completely deceived. And you know what he says here? He says, let no one deceive you. And look at verse 3. For it, the day of the Lord, we talked about that. It's the day of God's wrath on this earth. Guess what? People say, why isn't God dealing with sin? What happens here? All these people get away with all this stuff. God's patient. If he dealt with sin, he'd have to take you right now and punish you if you're not saved. And he's waiting. He's patient for you to repent. But there will be a day when he does come. Yahweh's day, the day of the Lord. And he's going to bring about his wrath upon this earth for its sin. And these Thessalonians thought they were in it. But Paul says, no, two things have to happen before that's there. And they haven't happened, so you're not in it. And that's what he's explaining. And that's what this passage is about. And within this passage, we learn about the day of the Lord, which we will not go through, but we learn about the future. He says, verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. That's the first thing. And the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, we see, is revealed here. That's what we're going to see. He says, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Two things. We saw it already. We've already gone through this, so I'm rushing through it. Apostasy means falling away, a defection. To apostatize means you have to have claimed to follow Jesus. You said, yes, I believe, but you really didn't believe. And things happen, and eventually you go, forget it, I don't believe. That's apostatizing. That's turning away. And in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6, we see that it is impossible for those who fall away to be renewed to repentance. Because they've already heard the truth. There's nothing else that can save them. Only Christ can save them. And so we have the first thing. This apostasy must come. Now, we see apostasy in little bits all right now. People who name the name of Christ but turn away. They never really truly were saved. They've apostatized. But here he talks about the apostasy in the big sense. The wholesale turning of those who name Christ, who really aren't saved, away from Christ. This day isn't going to come until they've turned. Until the apostasy has come. And then he says, the man of lawlessness is revealed. You won't be in the day of the Lord, and you can't, because the Lord's going to take you. But if it was... Hypothetically, the man of lawlessness would have had to have been revealed. And he says, the son of destruction. We saw this. Lawlessness speaks of sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. This is the man of sin. It's a man being revealed. It's a human being. A created being. He's also called the son of destruction. In Scripture, when you hear son of something... It means there's a relationship to what the of is. Son of something, right? Son of destruction. The word destruction means utter waste. It's translated perdition. It's only they're used one other time of Judas. Judas was the tool of Satan to betray Jesus. And he was in the same light this man who will come is the same thing. The son of destruction. It shows his spiritual origin. Jesus told the Pharisees and the Jews who didn't believe in him, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the will of your father. Get your spiritual heritage. You see, we were all of Satan without even understanding it when we were born. We're all of sin. But when we trust in Christ, we're delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so here we have this man of utter ruin, the son of utter ruin, destruction. Now, we went through a bunch of passages last time, and again, I'm not going to review them because there's not enough time, 
But this is the same person the Lord Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24, 15, the abomination of desolation, which he referred to the book of Daniel, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. The term abomination means detestable thing. He is the detestable thing that causes destruction. That's what this man is, the Antichrist. We saw in Daniel chapter 9 that the abomination of desolation, and that's the same thing, Antichrist, beast, the son of destruction, the man of lawlessness, same guy. Same guy. It's a man. We saw in Daniel chapter 9 that he would make a firm covenant with Israel in the last week of the 70 weeks of years which would begin that seven-year tribulation. That's why we call it a seven-year tribulation. When we're taken away, the church, whoever didn't come to Christ, goes into this seven-year tribulation where the first three and a half years, this man has made a deal with Israel to let them sacrifice and do their thing. But yet there's all kinds of wars and rumors of wars and all kinds of stuff going on. But in the middle of that seven years, as we're going to see today, Satan gives him all his power. We'll see that. And he now is empowered by his power and authority. He is the Antichrist, and he has full reign for three and a half years. And the world follows him to their own destruction, as we will see today. God's going to allow the world to get what it wants, and then he's going to destroy it because they have rejected Christ. They they did not have a love of the truth so as to be saved, but they loved their sin instead. That's what we're going to see. We see this Antichrist is also spoken of in a sense of a leader of a kingdom in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel shares with Nebuchadnezzar in his vision in Daniel 2, the world superpower of the time, that him, including him, and three more kingdoms to come. These are these four future kingdoms. We see in Daniel chapter 7 in Daniel's vision of the four beasts, which helps us understand these kingdoms and their relationship to the Antichrist in the fourth. We see this abomination of desolation as the man who will be the leader of this final kingdom, and he's going to take over, those, be in charge of those ten kingdoms and pull three out, and we see that in Daniel. Daniel 7.25, and he will speak against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and law, and they will be given into his hand for time, times, and a half a time. Pretty scary stuff. That last three and a half years, Satan's going to have his way and his man's going to be completely in control. But there's something that restrains that right now. And we're going to see that. And because of that restraint, you Thessalonians cannot be in this horrible time. Because there's something holding that event and that person back. So he says, let no one deceive you. For it, the day of the Lord will not come, back in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, and thus the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And notice what we saw last time. Who opposes, verse 4, and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. At this time, you got the apostasy. you got everyone who's turned, and they don't claim to follow Jesus anymore, but they're worshiping all kinds of gods and all kinds of different things, Right? During that seven years, there are a remnant that gets saved. There's a few small remnant that gets saved. But you have this world that is ripe for this Antichrist. And so he opposes and exalts himself above all the gods of the world. And he says here, so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself to be God. In the middle of the tribulation, we're going to see this today. The Antichrist declares himself to be God. And he seeks to get worship from everyone on the earth. And we see that last three and a half years as the whole earth literally goes to hell before Christ comes 
which we read about earlier, and delivers his people and destroys his enemies. So he takes his seat in the temple, displaying himself as being God. This Antichrist, this man, is an opposite. He's an Antichrist. He's going to portray himself as, in a sense, the Christ. But he's not. He's not. God took on human flesh. The Lord Jesus took on human flesh. This is a man empowered by Satan, a counterfeit, very fitting for the end and judgment of this world who has rejected Christ. So he takes his place in this temple, displaying himself to be God, and that's when God's judgment gets poured on full. And you can read Revelation. It gets poured on full on this earth. And they were unwilling to repent. Keep reading in there. God's judgment got hotter and hotter and hotter and worse and worse and worse. They still wouldn't repent. And then notice what Paul says in verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians 2. Do you not remember while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? This is an amazing statement. Paul came to Thessalonica, and he was there three weeks, shared the gospel, they got saved, and during that three weeks, he's sharing this. He's sharing the truth about Christ and the future and what's going to happen. And they were eagerly awaiting Christ, and they believed it. He says, don't you remember? I already told you this stuff, guys. Don't get taken captive by those guys with the false letters and the dumb stuff. Don't, for us, don't go on TV and watch those prophecy shows and all that junk on TBN. Read the Bible and examine it with scripture. So he says, basically, don't you remember I told you? Don't so quickly get shaken up. Don't be frightened in the midst of all your persecution. You're suffering greatly. The day of the Lord can't come unless these things happen. But stand firm, verse 15, as we're going to see, in Christ, and hold firm to the truth that you have already learned. So we come to our passage. Long introduction, but needed. Come to our passage, verse 6. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power, signs, and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth, so as to be saved. You came here today, this is a warning as we read through this. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence that they might believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. God gives them a chance to believe, but when you reject, he allows you to be deceived. So then, notice, first of all, the Holy Spirit's restraint, I believe, will be removed when the church is raptured, taken up, that the lawless man will be revealed. That has to happen. That's why it hasn't happened yet. That's why the Antichrist hasn't been revealed yet. There's a restraining influence on the wickedness that would come forth through this man. Verse 6, and you know what restrains him now. He's in Thessalonians, you're less than a year old in the faith, and you know this already. You already know this. There's some believers who've been in the faith for years and they couldn't tell you what this is. In the end of 1 Thessalonians, it says, Read that Saul the brethren. We should know the word of God.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. <music>